0: If you looked very carefully and you read John from the beginning to the end, which I would highly recommend that you do. I did it this last week. You can do it in about a week or some of you that are faster readers could do it in a day or two. They really believe it only contains about 20 or 21 days out of the 33 some odd years of Jesus. So he's very particular. He's looking at 10 stories and he's like, okay, I'm not going to include that one. Well, that's a good one. I'm not going to include that one. Maybe that one. You know, he's he's including specific stories for specific reasons. And this story is what he chose to be the climax for his whole letter. The story we're going to read this morning. There's one more chapter after this, but it's kind of mopping up of the details. This is really what he chooses. He chooses all the specific stories in order to lead up to this story. So I'm going to read it to us this morning. John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29. One of the 12 disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came the first time. They're talking about His resurrection. In other words, we had how many apostles? What's the common number? How many? Twelve. Now, about this time, we were probably short how many of them. One, because Judas sold Jesus out, and he went out, and there's some kids here, but there's another part of the story that his life didn't end real well, but he, he wasn't with them. So we're down to about 11. And what it's telling us is that the first time Jesus appeared to the apostles after He raised from the dead, there was only like 10 of them there. There was another one missing. And the one that was missing at that first appearance was Thomas. Okay. One of the 12 disciples, Thomas nicknamed the twin was not with the others when Jesus came. So the other 12, the other 10 told him, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas replied, I won't believe it. Unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, I put my fingers into them, and I place my hand into the wound in his side. Thomas is a skeptic. He doesn't believe it unless he sees it. He would fit right in here in Baltimore County. We just don't believe it unless we see it. And sometimes even when we see it, we still don't believe it. So there's a place for all of us. (laughs) in this story eight days later the disciples were all together again so the eleven are here and thomas is here this time and this time thomas was with them here's an interesting detail john decided to include the doors were locked now why would he include that read read on and suddenly as before jesus was standing among them in other words he didn't come through a door he didn't come through the window he just appears my six-year-old thinks this is the coolest thing. We were talking about this on the ride end today about our resurrection bodies. He's like, he's like, so how did Jesus get in the room? I was like, I don't know, dude. He broke the space-time continuum and he just showed up. He's like, I'm gonna be Iron Man in heaven. He was like all excited about this. He's like, Jesus has magical powers. He's like, well, no, they're not magical powers. Magic is a trick, it's an illusion. He has like real powers. Now Chase is like, so I'll have repulsor beams too because they're real? I'm like, no. Um, so it kind of went on a sideway, But like Jesus just showed up. He shows up with all the doors and the windows locked. And he says, peace be with you. Well, obviously, they'd be terrified. They need to calm down. Calm down. Peace. Then he says to Thomas, put your finger here. Look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. And then he rebukes him. (laughs) But don't be faithless any longer. Believe. He's kind of almost contradicting himself. He's saying, you shouldn't need me to show up to believe in me. You shouldn't need to touch me, but see me. Believe me, touch me, my Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. Then Jesus told him, you believe because you've seen me. And then he breaks the fourth wall and he grabs the camera and he's talking to you and me. And he says this, blessed are all of those who believe without seeing me. Wow. Big idea today. We're going to talk about hope this morning. The big idea I want to drive home is this. This is my argument. And I have to go about trying to prove this to you this morning. Here's my thesis, my argument. What we believe about the future completely controls how we experience our present. What you believe about the future, about your future, about your tomorrow, your next month, your next five years, what you believe about that completely controls your attitude and how you're living today. Completely controls us. Jesus offers us hope that your tomorrow, that your future can be certain can be guaranteed, can be a known commodity that you can bank on. Why? Because he died and he rose. So that's a lot for me to have to prove this morning. Um, But I want to show you that. I want to show you what the Bible teaches us. I want to show you in this story that John records what he's trying to tell us. What you believe about your future completely controls how you experience your present. Jesus offers us hope that your future can be certain because he died and rose. So two points. Here's the first one. Everyone needs... Hope for their future. You need it. Pastor, why should I listen to you this morning? Because there's certain things in life you can't live without. If you don't have them, your life will be miserable and ruined and meaningless. And some of the things you need to have are things like a purpose, an identity, a meaning, Contentment And another thing that every human being needs is hope. And why should you listen to me this morning? Because A, you need it. And B, Christianity offers to supply you hope that's better than anywhere else you can get it. And you should want it to be true. You should hope that hope is true. So let me show you. Uh, Number one, everyone needs it. Here's my illustration. Suppose you have the opportunity to hire two teenagers to work a summer job for your company. Your company is building one of the many CVS stores that are taking over Baltimore County. CVS is everywhere. <laughs> County beautification project, let's make the corner of Joppa Road and Bel Air Road beautiful. You know what we need? Another drugstore. Let's move the diner and put a drugstore right there. Because <laughs> that's what I need. We need another CVS. I know I don't have enough of them. So, um, And they have great coupons, extra bucks. They're fantastic. Let's say you're in charge of the CVS you know, uh, building process, and you've got to clear several acres of land, and you hire two 16-year-old young men from Baltimore County that are identical and everywhere, the same age, same physical ability, same health level, and you say, I'm going to pay you during your summer break to work for me. You're both going to have the same job, and you meet with the first student. You say, your job is to take this five-gallon bucket and walk all over this property where the bulldozers have gone and pick up rocks, put them in the bucket, Carry the bucket to that pile, dump them out, and keep doing it all summer long, 10 hours a day through the entire summer. And at the end of the summer, I will pay you $100. You go to the next teenager. Now, you send that one. Okay, go get started. Next teenager, all right, listen, I'm going to hire you. You're going to take that five-gallon bucket. You're going to go through the same land this other guy is going through. You're going to fill rocks in that bucket. You're going to take them over there. You're going to dump them out. You're going to go back and fill them up 10 hours a day. We'll give you 30 minutes for lunch. Okay, we're not cruel. And at the end of the summer, I will pay you $100,000 for your job. And we send those two boys out there, and they work all day, every day, except for the 30-minute lunch break because we're not cruel. And they're filling up one bucket of rocks after the other. And it's hot. It's a Baltimore summer. It's humid. It's nasty. One week goes by, two weeks go by. On the third week, these two young men sit down, these two students sit down and they finally decide they're gonna have lunch together today. And the first young man, he's about had it. And he looks at the other young man and he says, isn't this just the worst job ever? Isn't this horrible? It's boring, it's dirty, it's hard work, the pay is terrible, don't you just wanna quit? And the second guy says, No, actually, I kind of like this job. Conditions aren't that bad. It's not stressful. There's plenty of work. I even whistle while I work. This is actually great. I love my job. You have two identical human beings experiencing the very same circumstances, and yet they're processing them in radically different ways. Why? What they believe about their future totally controls how they process their present. One of them looks at his future and he says, at the end of all this, the payoff just isn't worth it. Therefore, this is miserable. What do I have to look forward to? I have no hope of a better future. The other one says, look what I get at the end of all this. At the end of all this, my future is bright. $100,000, I could retire at 19. Because he's 15 and he doesn't know, right? (laughs) $100,000, that's more money than I've ever seen in my life. Just think of what I could do. This is is great. Why? Because for every single one of us, we are irreducibly, unavoidably hope- based creatures what you believe about your future completely controls how you're living in the present and every single culture every single religion every single non-religion understands this and tries to supply hope to its members somehow because here's what every single culture understands at some point and every single religion understands at some point It understands that at some point in our life, you and I are going to wake up to the fact that death is a real thing. We're going to wake up to it. And that waking up to it is quite uncomfortable. And it's scary. It's sad. It's terrifying. And every single culture and every single religion tries to provide for its members some kind of hope to make them more brave about facing death because every single culture and every single religion understands that if you and I don't have any type of hope for our future, we're going to sink into utter despair. Life will just be too painful because every single moment you will feel like everything i care about everything i love is gradually slipping away from me everything about who i am everything about who i hold dear everything about life is slipping away from me and that is just too much for me to bear so i either don't need to think about it at all or i think myself into despair so every culture every religion tries to give you hope So that you don't have to live every single day feeling like I'm just one day closer to dying. You can really live because you know your future is certain and it's also better than what your present is. So how does Christianity respond to that? What does Christianity have to offer you? What kind of hope does Christianity have to offer you and to me to make us less terrified about our future? It offers you, point number two, it offers you the hope that is called the fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the hope that Christianity has to offer. So in your notes, number two, Christianity's response to humanity's need for hope is the fact of Jesus' resurrection. The fact, not the symbol of jesus's resurrection not the story of jesus's resurrection not what people it's the fact of his resurrection now in this story we read isn't it interesting in john chapter 20 that while everybody else is saying he is risen he's risen indeed i don't know if they started it then or that happened somewhere with the church fathers or whatever everybody's going around saying he's risen he's risen he's risen except thomas Thomas is the one saying, I don't believe it. Unless I see the visible Jesus appear out of thin air. Unless I lay my eyes on him. And not just that. Unless I can see the nails in his hand and touch him with my little itty bitty fingers. Unless I can see the wound in his side where they stuck the spear in him a few days ago to make sure he was really dead. And the blood and the water separated. Unless I see that with my eyes. I won't believe. And isn't it interesting that the very next thing John says happened is exactly that? Eight days later, a week later, the eleven are together again. Doors locked, windows locked. And suddenly Jesus appears in the middle of them, says, peace be still, peace be among you, peace be to you. And the very next thing he does is he addresses Thomas. And he says, here I am go ahead and touch, touch my hands, touch my side, go ahead and touch me. And then he rebukes him. Stop doubting. Stop being faithless. Stop being skeptical and believe. He said, you're blessed. You believe because you've seen me. Another saying is you're getting the royal treatment that very few people will ever get. He also knew he was going to spend another 40 days with them, giving his disciples every single possible intellectual proof, every single possible physical proof, every single possible spiritual and theological proof. He went over and over and over, answered every single question they had. He spent 40 days with them, giving them the royal treatment to make sure they were all convinced he really was raised from the dead. He says, good for you. You believe because you've seen. And then he talks to us. He says, but blessed are the people who won't get me to appear in the middle of the room with the doors locked and still believe. Blessed are the people who I never let life pan out the way they thought it should and they still believed. Blessed are the people who never got to marry the person they really loved and they still believed. Blessed are the people who didn't say, if you just do X and I didn't do X, but they still believed. Blessed are those who won't ever see me and still believe and isn't it doesn't it seem like Jesus was contradicting himself on the one hand he's saying to Thomas Thomas you should not need me to appear to you for you to believe but at the same time he says I'm appearing to you here I am touch me touch my hands touch my side believe in me on the one hand he's saying you shouldn't need this but on the other hand here it is what's he really doing here he's doing two things first of all and you have to see this Jesus is telling you and me that you can, in fact, achieve tremendous certainty about the fact of the resurrection, even if you've never had a visible, physical encounter with the resurrected Jesus. He's saying you don't have to. Have Jesus physically show up for you to touch him in order to be absolutely certain and sure that he really did, in fact, raise from the dead. And I am so glad to hear that. I've not had that experience. I have not been in a room with the doors locked or in a car with the doors locked. And Jesus shows up in the flesh and invites me to, you know, to dap him up or something. That's never happened to me. But yet, at the same time, I am absolutely certain, personally, Phil Nauer is convinced Jesus actually did raise from the dead. That they weren't just high, that they weren't just hallucinating. Well, they might have been hallucinating. People don't generally hallucinate in groups like that and see the same vision. Well, they were just conspiracy theorists. Thousands of people were murdered over the next few hundred years who claimed to be eyewitnesses to that. Listen, if you're a conspiracy theorist and you've got a YouTube channel, right? We're not asking you to put your life on the line for your conspiracies. If you're a conspiracy theorist, if they were hoaxsters, guess what? They knew they were lying. And if they knew they were lying, no one goes to death to protect a lie not hundreds of people you have to give me another historically plausible reason for how 200 years after this happened the powerful greco-roman empire had been uprooted and supplanted by masses of people turning to christianity how did that happen if this was all just a joke you see i trust the eyewitnesses i trust the story of the resurrection. I trust that what they wrote was true. I trust how the people who heard it first and saw it were completely transformed and turned their world upside down. I trust it. On the other hand, don't you want it to be true? If it really is true and it means that Jesus did defeat death, and that you and I, if we follow him, don't have to fear death because we'll rise just like he rose. That at death, we don't, you know, just become the circle of life. Like, you know, Mufasa told Simba that we all become part of the grass. The antelope eat us anyway. And we, you know, Elton John sings and everything else. He, that's a great little Disney story, but I don't want a future where I become part of the grass. How does that make my present good? It makes it lousy. Become antelope food. Yeah, great. I don't want a future that's impersonal. I don't want a future that's non-existent. You know what we want more than anything else? We want to be loved. We want love without parting. That's what we want. We want to love and be loved without ever having that separate. And if I don't come back as a person. If it's just that I become antelope food or I become in the circle of life somewhere or I. Then I've lost everything. Why do we want this to be true? Because it ministers the very part of our soul. So why did Jesus show up for Thomas? Number one, to show you that you could achieve great... This isn't in your notes. You can achieve great certainty about the resurrection, even if he doesn't show up the same way for you. But number two, he didn't show up so that Thomas... Thomas didn't need Jesus to show up to become a believer. Thomas needed Jesus to show up because he needed to be an apostle. It's a difference. You see, Thomas was one of the twelve... The 12 who? Disciples, Disciples, 12 apostles. Apostles. He was one of the 12. The apostles were Jesus' hand-picked messengers who had a specific assignment. They were supposed to carry the message of the gospel to the world. Now, how do I explain this? If that message they were supposed to carry was simply a nice leather-bound Book collection of all Jesus' ethical wisdom. Did he need to show up? No, they already had all that. They spent three years with Jesus, listening to all of his teaching. If the message they were supposed to carry to the world was simply uh, love one another, get over your differences, and get along, be peacemakers. Be kind to your neighbors. If that's, what Jesus, if that's what the apostles were supposed to carry, Jesus didn't need to appear to Thomas or the, other, or the other ten. He didn't need to appear to any of them. They had everything they needed. What it's telling us is that the message of the gospel is not the collection of what Jesus taught. The message of the gospel is the story of what Jesus did. Big difference. The last thing you and I need is another book of nice ethical principles. How is that going to transform everybody's life? You mean to tell me among the thousands and the thousands and the thousands of the poor and the down and outers that over the next 200 years were converting in the masses and uprooted the empire? You mean that when the apostles got to them and these poor, downtrodden, discouraged, despair people who are at the bottom of the life ladder, what they're looking for is for someone to come into their village and say to them, you know what? Here's the solution. And they're saying, yes, tell us, be nice to each other. Be kind. Put your differences aside. Get along with each other. That's the last thing they need. That wouldn't have changed anybody. That wouldn't have fixed their broken heart. That wouldn't have fixed their life view. Listen, I've had the opportunity and some of you have. I've been in some pretty sad places in the world. Both in this country and outside of this country. I was in the middle of South America and the nation of Paraguay. And we got on a bus and we drove a bus for 50 miles. And then we got out of the bar- bus and we walked for three miles to get to a village where they had never seen white people. They had Coca-Cola, but they'd never seen white people. A village of about 100, 120 people. They had never seen a white person before. They were completely isolated from the outside world. They were very poor. In fact, they had formed this village because they all had a disease that they believed was terminal. And they wanted to isolate them from everybody else. Basically, the people grew up there poor and forgotten about. And what they could look forward to is dying. So our little group of 37 teenagers and me. were invited to come in and tell them about hope. You know what they didn't want to hear? You know what you need, guys? Be nice to each other and life will be better for you. If you can just put your differences aside and get along, if you can just turn the other cheek, those are all great ethical teachings. But Jesus knew that wasn't what he needed Thomas to understand. That wasn't what he needed the 10 to understand. That wasn't what was going to change the world. What those kids need is the same thing as that you need and what I need. We need to know that despite of my past, despite of my record, whether I'm healthy or I'm sick, whether I have a lot or little or I'm in the middle, regardless of whether I can go back and start my life all over again and make different choices, regardless of any of those things, I can have hope that in my future, when this body dies, it won't stay dead. It will be raised back to life. I'll have a brand new body, not the body that that not just a, a better body than I had. It'll be the body I always wished I could have had, but didn't have. And now I have, I won't just have repayment for the life that I lost. I'll have a restored life that will be better than any life I ever could have imagined. That gives me hope. That's what those kids needed to know, that even though you're sick and even though life is difficult, you have hope that if you put your faith in Jesus, you have a certain future. Why? Because he lived just like you lived and he died just like you're going to die. But he didn't stay dead. He defeated death. And he said, if you follow me, that power will come into you. And then you don't have to be scared of death either. You can live your present with peace and joy because your future is certain and secure and it's better. That's what those kids needed to hear. That's what the apostles needed to know. Thomas didn't need Jesus to show up to believe in him. Thomas needed Jesus to show up because he needed to be convinced that Jesus did die and he was raised from the dead and he needed that knowledge to go do the job he was supposed to do. That's why Jesus showed up for Thomas. So what does that mean for you and for me? It means that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he took away the barrier between God and God. And us and when he rose from the dead he destroyed what no one up to that point had destroyed death was final you died and that was it jesus destroyed the power that sin has over us and death has over us by raising from the dead and here's the hope here's the hope christianity supplies in order to have a future that is certain And in order to have a future that is better, in other words, in order to have a future that is certainly better, it's not about anything you have to do, because that would be pressure none of us would be able to live with. In fact, every other major world religion gives you that. If you want a future that's secure, here are the five pillars, or here are the eight levels, or here are the different things you need to do. No, 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 no. Here's what Christianity says. If you want a future that is certainly better, it's not about anything that you can do. It's about what Jesus has already done. It's not about what you have to achieve. It's not that you because most of us would say this, man, if getting into heaven is about me dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's and being kind with people, it's too late for me. I would literally have to go back to the beginning of my life and start at birth and be very aware of how I need to live. in every single day of my life, I would need to literally be born all over again and start at the beginning because it's too late for me. But isn't it nice to know that in the kingdom of God, you can come to him wherever you are in life and be completely reborn? You could be completely reborn in the kingdom. That whole slate gets washed clean, covered under the blood of Jesus. And from this point on, it's not about what you achieve. It's about what Jesus has already done. He died and rose. Every other religion says, here's the plan that if you follow it, you can save yourself. Christianity says, here's the man who came himself to save you. Big difference. Why can we say that? Because of the resurrection. Don't you want the resurrection to be true? Doesn't it sound at least good enough that even if you're skeptical, it's worth doing the homework? Because if it really is true, it changes everything for you. It changes everything for me. No longer do we have to fear death. And if you don't fear death, guess how much better your life becomes. The people who don't fear death can really live. The people who are terrified of death are slowly dying. And I don't want to live a life where I'm slowly dying, letting every single moment and every single relationship be held with a little bit of bittersweetness because at some point I'm going to go where it's going to go. What kind of a way to live is that? Or anesthetize it with spending, which really just amounts to spending and buying and experiencing, which really just amounts to fidgeting until we die. I don't want that. How do you get past that? You have to have a future that is better and that is certain. And if you have that, then your present can be lived while you're whistling, picking up rocks, and dumping them in a pile to make a new CVS come to Baltimore County. If the resurrection is a fact, and it is, and don't you want it to be, then you have hope. If the resurrection is not a fact, then all you have is a good set of principles that Jesus taught. That's all you got. They're good principles won't transform your life. If the resurrection really happened, then when you turn to Jesus, his resurrection power is poured into you. And it transforms you. And he said at the end of time, you'll be raised into a new life just like he was. And you'll be part of the glorious future with him just like he is. Well, on what authority can Jesus say that to me? Joker beat death. He can say whatever he wants. He was killed clinically dead. In fact, last week in our youth ministry in the well, uh, Bob Barlow, one of our one of our youth directors, I'm told shared from a medical perspective. Bob has studied the heart in great detail in his life and shared from a medical perspective in great detail with our students about what Jesus actually went through on the cross. That he was actually dead. Correct, Bob? Right? Of course, and and, and then explained the message of salvation. And 13 of our students accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior at the end of that presentation. Why? Because they felt bad about Jesus hanging on the cross? No, God revealed the truth about who Jesus is and what he did. Not just that he died, because we're all going to do that. But that he defeated death. He was clinically dead and he rose. Here's why Christian hope is unique. I'll close with this. Because I understand every culture offers hope, every job offers hope. If you work here X amount of years or X amount of hours, you get this at the end of the highway. Um, Every religion offers hope. that's why they have followers. You know, no one's signing up to follow the religion that offers no hope. That would be really depressing. But uh, let me sh- explain to you a couple characteristics of Christian hope that's unique. Christianity offers a hope that is personal. Um, there's this interesting interplay between the resurrected Jesus and the people he runs into. I don't know if you've ever read through the end of the gospel accounts. There's some different stories about people who knew Jesus before he died on the cross, who run into him later. And it takes them a second To be like, man, I was hanging out with this guy all afternoon and then later on it dawns on them, wait a minute, we spent hours with that. That was Jesus. Now, could you imagine your your BFF, your best friend, you don't see him for 10 years and then you run into a stranger at an airport, you have a cup of coffee together and you get in the airplane and, and later on you're like, I think that was my best friend. I think that was them. I didn't realize it at the time. It must have been. Thomas has this same experience. Jesus shows up and it takes Thomas a second. And then one of the most beautiful things in all the Gospels he says to me that gives me hope about heaven is this. He says, yeah, you're different. My Lord, my God, you're, you're Jesus. You're the guy I spent three years with. You're, what, wow, you're different. What, you're oh, so much more holy and bright, you know, <laughs> like the, than you used to be. All these other people are running into Jesus, and they're not, In other words, he was very real. He was very tangible. He wasn't a ghost. He wasn't Iron Man. He wasn't some uh, hologram in Vegas. He was flesh and blood, but a different kind of body than what he had before. In other words, he was knowable. He was recognizable. He could love. He could be loved. You know what that tells us? You and I are not going to be antelope food in the future. We're not going to be non-existent. We're not going to just evaporate. We die and we rot, and then we just evaporate into nothingness. The future that Jesus says we have is not one of non-existence. It's not one of impersonal. Our future, in, when we get our new bodies, will be a personal future. Because how beautiful is it to know that in heaven it will be filled with love? Because guess what? If you're impersonal and non-existent, there's no love. You need persons to love. And if you're telling me that my future means I come back not as myself or not as any self, but I'm some little collection of, you know, outlines that play a harp on top of a cloud. I don't even like harp music. How does that make today any more sweet for me? We see right here, Thomas recognized Jesus. He loved him. Jesus received his love in the future, in heaven. When we get our new bodies, you'll be a person that can love That can be loved. Heaven is not where you're separated from everything that ever meant anything for you forever, forever, forever. You will have a new person. It will be better than you ever were before. The hope that Christianity offers, it's a personal hope. It's also a certain hope. Because here's the reality. And I know some of you must be thinking this. What good is hope if I don't think I'll ever get there? That's like when my wife asked me, you know, have you thought about retiling the kitchen? I'll be like, I will take that idea under consideration. And she says that when I use that phrase, taking ideas under consideration is where her ideas go to die. (laughs) Because it's really my nice way of saying not a chance, not in the budget, not in the plans. But it's a nicer way of saying that, which now that I've said that, that trick is up. I'll have to come up with a new phrase. But um, (laughs) it's like she's thinking he's not holding out any hope for me. That's never going to happen. What good is him even saying that? And this idea of heaven and the resurrection and all these things, lots of skeptics say, what good is that idea out there? If I'm not even sure if I'm going to get to heaven and maybe you're in that headspace this morning. You're saying, I'm just not sure I'm going to get there. I'm not sure I qualify. I'm not sure I could get in. How can I be absolutely certain that that's my future? Because if I was really certain and I really knew, man, that would change everything for me, the load off of my shoulders, the seasoning that would be permeating my entire life would be there'd be so much more sweetness sprinkled throughout life if I knew that it was certain. How can you be sure of your resurrection? I don't have a lot of time, so I'll just have to use this illustration. Jesus's resurrection is kind of. um, It's a receipt uh, my, my son and I made the mistake of going to Marshalls and Towson on the Thursday of Easter week. They had, I think, a total of, I counted, 15 possible cash registers that could be open and staffed. There were this many that were open. There were this many people looking at the that many that were running the register. And there was a line that serpentine the whole way around with people who were being less than understanding of the situation. So it took us four minutes because my son is male. I'm male. We go into Marshall's not to look around. We go in on a mission. We're not there when we when I say go to shop, that means I'm going specific. It's like hunting. There's a specific target, specific ammunition. We do not deviate from the plan. They have it or they don't. We're in and we're out. I plan where I park the route we're going to take in the store. I know the layout of the store before I go in with my son. We route around electronics and toys we go right to the t-shirts we go right to the rack of the size not the retail at marshalls the clearance with the red tags on it <laughs> size can be plus or minus 1 if it's on sale and we go for the thing we found it 4 minutes in we're in line for 35 minutes and right when we get up there these really handy little security systems they have in these stores you know they put some piece of plastic in the certain clothes you know, it's usually in the clearance swim trunks for some reason, because heaven forbid they'd go out of business if there was a run on, you know, shoplifting swim trunks. Not that I'm advocating that. That's that's a sin that'll keep you from heaven. And they and they go through the little, you know, this, you know, some lady had her whole bag of things and she walks through that thing. And we, Have you ever had the bag with the tag not removed? And it's crowded and it beeps. How do you feel when that happens? Don't you just want to, like, apologize to everybody? You're like, immediately people are stereotyping you. You are a shoplifter. And they were not well-staffed to handle this effectively. And the lady who, when that thing went off, she just lost her dignity. She was part embarrassed, part angry, and she's pulling out her receipt, and she's like, I paid! I paid! She's showing everybody in the line. She's showing me, she's like, I paid. I'm like, I don't work here. you know? (laughs) Why do they always think I work there? If I wear a blazer... And my glasses, and I have like an Echo name tag on. They think I work in every store. People come up to me. Can you tell me where the... I don't know. I'm just bald and middle-aged. I, just, I don't work here. She's like, I paid. I paid. She's like, you're not going to make me pay for it again. She's like really getting incensed, and the people at the front desk are now going through her bag, trying to find the tag. They finally find, you know, in the bottom of the bag, they pull out this little pair of swim trunks, and there is the tag. Then they can't find this high-end machine to remove the tag. I mean, everybody's losing their she keeps, she's holding that receipt. I paid for it. I paid for it. Don't take me to jail. Don't lock me up. We're like, we're not going to lock you up over swimming trunks. We understand. What's her point? It's like, if I have a receipt, you have to leave me alone. I don't have to pay for this again. The receipt is the proof that something was paid for. The transaction went through and was accepted. And that because of this receipt, you don't have to bother me anymore. Now, in a weird way, Jesus' resurrection is the receipt of your resurrection. Because here's what actually happened. There was a transaction. There was a payment that needed to be made, the Bible says. The payment that needed to be made was a payment for everybody's sin forever. That was what was brought up to the counter. Jesus pulls out his life, and I don't know if it was a chip or a swipe or what it was, but he hung on the cross. He submitted payment. His death was the payment, your life, the purchase. Jesus' death, the payment. Now we're waiting three days, is it gonna clear? Payment gonna clear, have you ever been that nervous? You put it in there, you're like, come on, Visa. <laughs> Declined, okay, I got, discover, come on, discover. You know, Some of you that are graduates of financial peace understand that that feeling. You're like, you're hoping it goes through, right? Resurrection is the receipt. That means the payment was accepted. The debt was paid. Jesus had to be released from death, and he comes back. And when Jesus shows up, how can you be certain you're going to raise from the dead? Because the moment you put your faith in Jesus, a big old stamp and receipt gets stamped across your life and letters that big all of eternity can see it. It says, paid in full. Trouble me not. I don't have to pay for my life again. It's already been paid. And the enemy will come and remind you, you don't have to be certain. You slipped on a banana peel the other week. You know your record, you know your habits, you know your hang-ups, are hurt. Okay, I could do a CR commercial. You know your hurt, your habits, your hang-ups. They all start with H and I like alliteration. Every time those whispers come up in your ear, you just pull out that receipt. Jesus was raised from the dead. And if it actually happened, you can be certain. If it actually happened, you can be certain. If it didn't happen, no certainty for all of us. Go pick another religion. But if it did happen, and it did, and don't you, don't you want it to have happened? I do. If it did happen, you can be certain. You can be absolutely certain. The last thing, Christianity offers a hope that not only is personal and that's certain, it is unimaginably wonderful. The hope that Jesus offers us is unimaginably, 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 unimaginably wonderful. I understand that there's other world religions that offer a spiritual, heavenly afterlife. Only Christianity says that God will renew material creation. He'll actually renew the earth. He'll renew bodies. What he's telling us is this. If you really think hard about it, it's easy to get depressed about getting older because you feel like, Man, all those opportunities I had are gone. Relationships one by one by one by one are being stripped from me. My health, my beauty, my awareness, my intellectual acuity, all these things slowly slipping away. And what Jesus is saying to us is that the future is not just a reward Or paying you back for everything you lost. What he's saying is your future is the restoration of everything about life. It's not a consolation. It is a restoration. You don't just get the consolation for the life you lost. You get the restoration of the life you always wanted that you never had but now you have. It's not just the restoration of a broken down dead body, or it's not just the consolation for that. It is the restoration of the body you always wish you could have had, but that you never had. It will not age, it will not get sick, it will not be susceptible to germs. There will be no germs. You, heaven is unimaginably beautiful. Your future is unimaginably beautiful. The relationships you will enjoy, the health and the abilities and the options that you will have in your future. The Bible doesn't talk a whole lot about what heaven is because it's so far beyond the human capacity to imagine that the few people who even saw it didn't have vocabulary for the colors they saw. This is what Jesus offers you. He offers you hope. For a future that is personal. A future that is certain. A future that is unimaginably beautiful. Well, pastor, how do I have it? You have to do what Thomas did. He did three things in this story. He started listening to the apostles. He noticed how patient Jesus had been with him. And he dropped all of his conditions. He started listening to the apostles. You read the beginning of the story. You remember the story? The very beginning. Just read it a few minutes ago. Jesus says, or the apostles keep telling John, he's alive, he's alive. Over and over and over, the eyewitnesses were telling Thomas, Thomas, trust us, we were there, he's alive. He said, I won't believe you until I see it myself. But trust us, he was there. I won't believe you. Finally, he started listening to the apostles. Because when Jesus shows up, he says, stop doubting. Stop doubting who? The apostles. Are you listening to the apostles? They've written so that you and I can know that we can be certain that Jesus rose from the dead. They're trying to tell you and they're trying to tell me. Listen to us. It will transform your very life. If you want to believe in Jesus first, you have to start listening to the people who told us the truth and you have to start believing it. Secondly, you have to notice how patient he's been with you, because that's what Thomas did. What was it that really amazed Thomas? When Jesus shows up, he says, stop doubting and believe. Here's a question. How did Jesus know Thomas had been doubting for eight days? How did he know? Did the, like, did the other 10 have some sidebar with Jesus? Like, Jesus, we need to tell you something that's going on. You need to do another resurrection. We need to tip you off and then show up and really get him. Like, well, how did Jesus know? It finally dawns on Thomas. He heard everything Thomas said. He heard every stupid accusation he made. He heard every frustration that came out of his mouth. He saw all of his faithlessness, all of his worst. And yet there he is saying, I love you. Believe in me. Touch me. I'll have you. He saw how patient Jesus had been with him, even at his worst, and that Jesus still wanted a relationship with him. Can you see how patient Jesus is being with you? He's seen everything. He's been there every moment when we've embarrassed him and we've disappointed him and we've made our own decisions that that turned out our own way. He saw you at your worst. And yet here he is this morning, Easter morning saying, I love you. Will you just come and touch me and let me hold you? Will you put your faith in me and let my resurrection power empty into your life so that you can have a glorious future just like I have? Notice how patient he's been with you. And the last thing Thomas did was he finally dropped his conditions. Do you know what's missing from this story? And there's some debate here, so give me a little artistic license here. Jesus says, Thomas says, I won't believe unless I get to do what I see you and I touch you. Jesus appears. He says, see me and go ahead and. Does he touch him? Where does it say that he touched him? We don't know. Out of the 10 theologians I read, nine of them say they don't believe he touched him, and the other one says he's not sure. So, of course, they could all be wrong. But a guy like John, who is keeping all the details, wouldn't you think if he went up and touched him that John would have written that down? It's almost like Thomas is saying, you know what, I don't need to. Ah, uh, this is plenty. He finally drops his conditions. I won't believe unless... And Jesus shows up and says, go ahead. And John says, my Lord. Or Thomas says, my Lord and my God. You understand when you and I come to Jesus, we have to at some point drop our conditions too. We have to come to a place where we say, Jesus, I will believe in you even if you don't get me through grad school or not. I will believe in you even if you don't make my washing machine suddenly work without me having to buy a new one. I will believe in you even if I don't get the job. Even if that promotion passes me by, I will believe in you even if my healing never comes. Because here's the thing. Whatever your condition is, is really what you're looking to be your God. Right? Thomas's God was empirical proof. Your God might be, listen, uh, my life will be complete if and only if Mr. Wright marries me and I will follow anything if they can promise that to me, including Jesus, I'll say whatever prayer, if that'll get me the job, I'll follow whatever religion. If that'll get me the job, well, that job will never die for you. It'll demand you die for it. Only Jesus says, I have come. I've lived the life you should have lived. I died the death you deserve to die in your place as your substitute. I have risen from the dead so that if you'll put your hope in me, you can follow me. You can be like me and you can be risen too. I want to give you a chance. To make sure that your future is certain. Will you bow your head and close your eyes with me? Worship team, will you come? I want to give you one more thing to think about. Because if you're in this room. You're probably in one of two conditions. You're either unsure about your relationship with Jesus. Or you're sure. You're either unsure about your future or you're sure. Let me talk to those of you that are sure for a second. If. You're sure that means you are absolutely convinced that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a fact. And here's my question for you. If that's true. Shouldn't we be the happiest people on the face of the earth? If you know your future is certain in Christ and you have turned to Jesus You've admitted your sinfulness. You've confessed your belief in him. You've chosen him to be the Lord, the Lord of your life, and you're living that way. Shouldn't we be the happiest? Shouldn't there be something different about the way we experience our present that is observable and attractive to a world that doesn't have the same hope? My challenge to you is would you let the resurrection finally be a light bulb that clicks in your spirit today, and it transitions and it transfers The way you process your present in such a way that it shines a light into a dark world that need the same hope that you have. To those you're unsure about your future, you're unsure about the afterlife, you're unsure about what's going on after death. You don't know if you'll make it to heaven. My appeal to you is the same appeal to Thomas. Will you listen to the apostles? Will you see how patient he's been with you? Will you just drop your conditions and surrender to him this morning? If you will turn to Jesus and put your faith in him, he will save you. He will transform you. He will give you a hope that no one can take away that is certain, that is personal, that is unimaginably beautiful, and it's not about anything that you did or that you have to achieve. It's all about what Jesus has done, and the way to begin that relationship is simply to admit, to believe, and to choose, to admit that you need him to save you, that you're a sinner, that you've fallen just like the rest of us have into doing life our own way, You confess your belief in him, that Jesus is, in fact, the son of God who lived the life you should have lived, who died in your place, who rose from the dead, who's alive today and you choose him to be your Lord. That means we agree to do life his way. We follow his example. If you're ready to make that decision, let me lead you in a prayer this morning. If you're ready to make that decision, do not wait till this evening. Don't wait till tomorrow. If there's a part of your heart that is ready to surrender, can I encourage you? Don't give yourself time to talk yourself out of it. Let the power of his resurrection, let the certainty of that fact. Transform your life. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And if you'd like to join me in that, you can just repeat it quietly, whether you're here at the Hilton today, whether you're watching on Facebook, whether you're listening on the podcast later on, here's the prayer. Dear Jesus. I admit I'm a sinner. I've lived life my own way. I'm ready to turn away from that life right now and turn towards you. I believe in you, Jesus. You are the son of God. You lived the life I should have lived. You died on the cross in my place to make payment for me. And I believe you rose from the dead. That is the receipt that proves that I can have a hope that is certainly better. Thank you for forgiving me. And now I choose you as my Lord. I will align my entire life with yours. You're the leader. I'm your follower. Thank you for saving me. Amen.